Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Okay. I said okay. Continuing in the theme from the last episode, where we had revisited a conversation prior to the episode prior to that. This is a conversation with Jeff that occurred prior to the first conversation with Jeff. This is the actual first conversation with Jeff. The one that appears as the first conversation with Jeff was actually the second. Because this one was so long I had to break it up into two pieces and it took me a while to figure that out. And now that I think about it, if I really wanted to make this uh, thematically consistent, I should give you the second half of this first conversation first. But that's not what's going to happen. I'm going to give you the first half of the first conversation. Here it comes. Yes, that was an intro. If you like the podcast, patreon.com slash reality. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy this. It begins, if I'm not mistaken, for some reason we're talking about Star Wars. And then it goes into all kinds of other places that you probably by now have come to expect from an Assembly of Silence podcast. Here you go. In the second two movies felt really awkward to me. Huh. Um, the concepts were definitely interesting and the visual effects, of course, fantastic. Right. I find um, visual effects to be of limited, like, they just don't do much for me anymore. Right. Right. Just being wowed by what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel like uh, basically that ended with Star Wars. Like, right. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, I don't know how old you were when that, that shit came out. But I when, was old enough to see it. I saw, actually, Star Wars was like one of the first movies I saw on the big screen. Hmm. It wasn't the first, probably, but I remember seeing it in a drive-in movie theater. Huh, wow, drive-in. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it would be appropriate at the drive-in. Although drive-in movies were a lot of fun. Yeah, I was like five, I guess. Huh. When did it come out? I must have been six. I think it came out in 77. Yeah, I think it was somewhere around there. So I would have been 12. Yeah. Yeah. So was it a big thing for you? It was, but it was like a letdown in some weird way oh. for me. Like there was so much hype about it, and I was really excited to see it, and uh-huh. I felt a little ripped off by it for some reason. I don't even really know why at this point, but I, I remember feeling that way. I didn't get any hype. Huh. Like, I didn't even know what I was in for, really, or barely knew what I was in for. How did you react to it? Oh, I thought it was awesome. <laughs> I mean, I was six, you know, so. <laughs> I actually, we re rewatched it, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of amazed by it, although I think that they changed it, so. They completely changed it. Yeah, so <laughs> it was interesting to review, to revisit it, because I'd really dropped out mm-hmm. for a long time from that kind of thing. Right. So to see it again in its modified form was bizarre. It was a kind of a powerful, weird quasi-emotional experience to revisit it because I was still really young and and totally um, 
there was something about it that hit me with a fair amount of impact, even though I did feel some strange sense of disappointment. It uh-huh. was it was still like a pivotal event. Like there was something about going to see it that felt culturally important at the time, <laughs> socially important. You it know, like, was yeah. I mean, you it was, meet somebody of our age who hasn't seen Star Wars, and you're kind of like. What? <laughs> I know. Like, what? Are they out there? <laughs> Does anyone know someone who hasn't seen Star Wars? That's kind I of an interesting question. I met a guy question. when I was living in California who had not seen Star Wars. Huh. Any of them. And he had grown up in the United States. And, yeah. and well, he, I haven't seen Rocky. Okay, that's almost, that's almost the, the same, same thing. thing. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm into spaceships and lightsabers and things. Right. And not people hitting each other and weird drama around whatever. I don't know. I don't even know if I would enjoy Rocky. I probably would. It's probably a great movie. I remember loving it as a yeah. kid, and I have no idea what year it came out. But, yeah. you know, there was something about the blockbuster that kind of felt like required viewing for all members of the culture, irrespective right. of your particular group. Right, but that's changed. I think that we Does it we change now or we've fallen out of the group. Well, that's the same thing. I mean, you know, like we all are in the kind of our separate zones now, you know, and uh, and it seems like the sense of common experience that we used to have from some of those things. Because I had, I remember having a hard time relating to Rocky when I saw it, even though I loved it. Uh-huh. You know, like the amount of physical exercise, the raw eggs. The uh, the beating that he was taking in the right. ring and delivering, like all that kind of brutality of it, it was totally foreign to me. I was not, uh, you know, I didn't come from that kind of a, of a family, right. so it it was difficult to watch because of that. But something about it still appealed to me, <laughs> you know. And now I feel like I can relate to it more. But it was, at the time, probably just as much of a requirement on a social and cultural level that you go see Rocky than it was later on with Star Wars. Right. You know? But it's something started to splinter somewhere after that, where you know, the, the sci-fi fantasy people went their own way and the kind of like, I don't know what you'd call Rocky. It's somewhere between a melodrama and an adventure story, you know, vaguely kind of coming of age type of thing, but it's also like tapping into some basic, it's like people living a life in a trajectory that could be compared to a nation, you know, so it has to do with that kind of like sense of the underdog coming back and dominating, you know, and has, it has a weird racist thing undertone to it as well because there's the combat between the white guy and the black dude, right? Uh-huh. And so that element is in there as well, which is weird, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it has a, an emotional aspect too that's, you know, his relationship with, I don't remember the name of the female lead, but uh, that was also a huge component of it, you know, and having to prove himself in various ways, you know. So all of that was like grist for the common cultural experience, I think. And I don't know exactly, I feel like it was intentional. I feel like Hollywood and the powers that be created conditions where people wouldn't be able to relate to the same stories anymore and that's why we are where we are now where literally people can't relate to each other because they're thinking different narratives they're in different boxes that have been built by the storytellers that's the sense that i have it's so funny this conversation has come here because i was i was just thinking about that very concept earlier today hmm 
um, and with respect to Hollywood specifically, huh. um, there's, I think, a way to look back from a modern day at at some of the productions that have gone on and almost look at it like it's a programming exercise, mm-hmm. um, which you know leads right into what you're saying about us being in these different categories of perspective where we just can't really even contemplate how other people are seeing the world. And right. that is that is useful, I think, to people who are controlling things because whenever we're arguing amongst ourselves, we're not really focusing on the bigger picture of what's being done. Yeah, it um, certainly diminishes the power of the people, mm-hmm. without a doubt. It does seem like we're trapped in in a situation now where reaching across the divide into these different storylines that that people are kind of living with has become almost impossible you know even amongst people who grew up together for instance you know i i have this problem with my family now where there's certain members of the family that i can't most members of the family really that i i cannot bridge the gap uh i don't I have no idea how to do it. <laughs> right. And Peer pressure, I think, is the answer. Huh. I think that whenever I've seen people really change their views, it's because all their friends did it first and they're going to feel left out if they don't step up to the plate. Huh. Um, and this is where I think the media is really part of the program and it's, it's a very important part. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just the movies, but the television programs, and particularly the way the news is treated and the cycles of stories that get presented and just what's not said. Um, Mm. And so I think that people who have some views that you or I might find offensive or even um, beyond, Mm -hmm. um, I think those views are maintained by people around them and they, they, they get it echoed back to them through a big media outlet of some sort or another. Mm-hmm. And to them, if they were to go against what people around them or the big brother is saying, that that's just the scariest thing on the planet to people who are in that mode. Yeah, I guess the, the echo chamber aspect that you're kind of talking about is huge. And it does have that peer pressure reinforcement type of thing, although it seems like the possibility of changing when you're locked into one of those groups uh-huh. becomes less and less over time. It seems that people well, as tend long as to the get the group is strong, right. right? Yeah. So, you know, I wonder how many times uh, we, you know, lately there have been moments where a peer group kind of changes what mm. someone within it is thinking because it seems like people just get filtered out immediately if there's any significant difference, right. and so. Uh, it's you would have to have some degree of tolerance for people who think differently in order for there to be someone in your peer group who you're going to apply pressure to to make a change. Right. You know? <laughs> so, so we're getting all of these really hard, deep buckets Yeah, that you end up in and don't understand what's going on. And it's like on. the deeper it gets, the further away the light is. It's like right. it's this weird thing that at one it's almost like the cities, you know, where the skyscrapers are grown up around everyone and right. people in the in the big cities and in the, the mega cities particularly, they don't get to see the sky anymore. Right. You're basically like 
pushed down mm-hmm. way below. And the thing you said about programming, I think, is also really significant because media talks about programs. You know, what did we watch on television when we were kids? We watched programs, you know, mm-hmm. and what's being programmed? Well, the audience is being programmed. You know, this is something that I think Chomsky pointed out mm-hmm. that the product for television is the audience. Yes. And and so the the process of programming is being done to the to the audience. You know, the audience is a processed product. Right. It's uh <laughs> it's being carried to the next level with Facebook. Well, yeah. And then now you are the product if you are participating in Facebook. Big time. Yeah. But I mean, we were the product before too when we were right. watching TV. Right. We just didn't really know it as much. Now we get that kind of I think everyone is aware even as we're interacting with these devices right. that this is what's going on and yet we're kind of most of us, not all of us, and some people draw the lines in different places, but it seems to me that everyone I know who has drawn a line there's some place where they're like, ah, well, screw it, I'm going to use Twitter. <laughs> right. Like, whatever it is. Right. Like, yeah, email's still okay. It's like, yeah, I still have a cell phone, but I'm not using Facebook. Fuck that, you know? Um, <laughs> Interesting. So, you know, from the point of view of something like centralized information gathering, like NSA and the whole Snowden revelation and all that stuff, it doesn't matter. It's all the same stuff, right? right. It's basically like, I, I heard an interesting interview with this woman, Shoshana... I have to see. That's why I brought this device so I can remember stuff. I even have to carry around a device now just so I can remember the things that right. are relevant. It might be that there's more information to remember than we ever had to before. Oh, there's no doubt. Every day, how how many terabytes of data are added to this kind of collective uh, accumulation of data? It's just staggering when you right. think about what's being produced in terms, of, and it's all being stored. Mm-hmm. So the amount of storage necessary in order to keep all this information, let alone like the kinds of techniques that are necessary in order to analyze it and get anything out of it that's useful, it's freaking mind-blowing. But that is Sounds definitely... Sounds like we're going to be keeping ourselves busy for quite some time. <laughs> well, there's, there's definitely no shortage of shit to do, you know, but whether or not it's worth doing is another story, and, and whether or not it's going to lead to something that we would hope for as an outcome is also another story. But yeah, the, the woman who... I was uh, talking about is Shoshana Zuboff. She was interviewed on this podcast that I really enjoy listening to called Hidden Forces. And she basically talks about surveillance capitalism and a number of different aspects of it that were forced, in essence, you know, particularly those who are participating in the mainstream economy, to hand over a variety of information in exchange for connectivity that allows us to uh, maintain social connections and to uh, do business, basically. And at this point, the rule is it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as you continue to feed information about what you're doing. Right? right, that's the game right now. So, however it is that they manage to capture, you know, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn or email or even phone now, and basically, as I understand it, there's no such thing as a landline anymore. 
You know, the landlines are all fed into the digital grid as well. It's all a digital phone system. And so it's, it's like all nodes are basically on this massive communication grid. If you're going to participate in the telecommunication, and telecommunication is kind of an old term, but right. this is all offshoots of telecommunication, right? right? So you're going to participate in any way. You're an information source for this gigantic information gathering campaign. And she says that what we're coming up on, which maybe has to do with what we were discussing, I think, before I hit record about, you know, a big shift happening. And she says what we're coming up on is what they call I'm, – I'm going to try and pull the right word, but I may have to substitute something along those lines. It's like implementation. So it's like an information gathering phase. And then there's going to be this thing. It's not called implementation, but I'm going to have to call it right. implementation because I don't know how the hell look that one up. But that there's like a, a phase coming where this information is actually going to get utilized in some way or another. And that's something we also have very little understanding of what it's about. She says basically all of the uh, surveillance capitalism is like a black box. We know they're doing stuff. We don't know exactly what. We get a hint of it every now and then. So one of the reasons why people hate Facebook so much is because we've had some sense of what it is that they're doing. Right. you know. But really, there's a whole bunch of different things being tried, and we don't know what they all are about, and we don't know which one of them is going to get implemented. And you can imagine some pretty dark scenarios for sure. where this whole thing is going. It's strange because it's so much a part of, I, I mean, on some level, I feel like it comes naturally as a consequence of the entertainment world that we were brought up within, right. you know, of, of these films, this kind of like common cultural experience of these spectacles, basically. Sure. And that being like the most freaking exciting thing, because I remember that's how I felt about it. You know, for me, it was all about the, the movies and the music, and that's what made life interesting right. for some people is sporting events <laughs> yeah i i didn't uh, get into the sporting way. events much but yeah. yeah it's similar type of thing it's another type of spectacle another type of entertainment um it's a separation from what's actually happening on a certain level <laughs> quite a bit yeah yeah and that's even you know that now is getting confused i think because we're starting to see the integration of so-called reality you know, this virtual reality type of thing where people are being driven by simulations placed in reality. So they talk about, what is that game where people see the little things and they go running around after them everywhere? <laughs> oh, I couldn't tell you. Um, uh, something that people do in real... Yeah, it's like a it's game. Like a it's Pokemon, an, uh, it's Pokemon yeah. Pokemon, so Pokemon okay. Go, it's, it's built on a business model Uh-huh. That's basically about driving people to certain locations right, where business this. transactions might occur. And they'll, so they'll like get a whole bunch of people to go to these places that a business basically paid to have them driven to so they can collect their little, you know, Pokemon Go Virtual critters. sort of a right? acquisition. Right? And after doing they that for a while. They be there to get the little lights to change color on their little device. And right? they get some kind of a score that I guess adds to, I don't know, a credit system or something like that. Or, you know, then then you'll get hungry while you're doing that and you'll want to go to the pizza hut that just happens to be there, Sounds you know? Like Pavlov is salivating <laughs> in his grave. <laughs> I think it's probably more like Skinner. It's like behaviorism. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but, 
but yeah, Pavlov, I guess, is sort of a pre-behaviorist type of of uh, mm-hmm. he probably started that whole thing. Right. I wonder how he felt about it. <laughs> I, I'm curious. I'm curious if there's more to it um, in terms of the black box of the surveillance capitalism. Because right now, if you were just to look at it, if there isn't some sinister or otherwise um, foolhardy kind of implementation of the next stage of a process, mm. what it looks like currently is that we're just putting more and more energy into distracting ourselves right. and trying to find a place where small groups of people can capture big revenue streams. And capturing advertising dollar revenue streams has come, become one of those biggest streams that people could tap into. You know, if you look at all of the things that are big streams, there's very small, powerful corporate, you know, small number of very powerful corporations controlling them. The defense industry, it's not a hundred players at the top, it's five or six. Pharmaceuticals, advertisers, and these things are continually consolidating. Like when we have one corporation for each of six or seven major areas that we're all completely dependent upon to live, what does that mean? Well, it's interesting. It seems like there's an inverse relationship between uh, a sense of common social cohesion and like uh, business diversity, something along those lines, that the consolidation of the corporation is the fragmentation of the political body, mm-hmm. something like that. And it kind of makes sense, you know, that, that as pressures build, social pressures build, which can happen in a variety of different ways, you know, particularly, let's say, in a, an empire that's losing influence uh, throughout the world. So it's starting to have greater difficulty being able to secure a comfortable position. And so that's going to be reflected as social pressures within the nation. And that means that there's going to be a necessary restriction on people's access to the goods that they're accustomed to, which is going to be a painful kind of tampening down. You know, So on some level... I wonder if all of this isn't kind of necessary because there was a huge global imbalance that occurred after World War II where the United States had such a huge advantage over every other nation and took advantage of that advantage and basically lived this life of conspicuous consumption. And so the you know there's, there's a huge inequity not only within US society but you know US society compared to the rest of the world that has to be balanced out. And so there's going to be this kind of painful drawdown as the empire declines. And so it may be that some of this surveillance capitalism, because now capitalism is kind of a global thing. So it's really not, you know, it's, it's very scary. Yes. So they, they may, you know, one of the ways of interpreting this in a perhaps more favorable light would be to say, well, it's actually necessary that there be a drawdown. And so people within these Western democracies are going to have to get used to a restricted lifestyle that's, that's you know, a standard of living below that of which they're accustomed to. And any time that that happens in any society, it's always going to cause a lot of upset and protest. But how will we continue as a species if we continue to have such intense disparities on a global level. 
particularly as it's this kind of conspicuous consumption mode of existence that has created so many environmental problems, which are now kind of threatening everything. <laughs> you right. know? So we, uh, we clearly can't keep going like this. Yeah. And I, I feel like there's another way to analyze it where you step out of the country model, the mm. nation state model, and you just look at it purely in terms of power. Now, clearly the nation state is a great lever for wielding power. Right. Um, but clearly the interests of the people of the nation state are not why the nation state wields power. Right. And so whoever is wielding the power, be it through a mega corporation or a nation state or a huge religious organization that's been around for thousands of years, um, I think that's, that's where the focus... We need to figure out if there's a way to focus on that particular aspect of what's going on here because which aspect ultimately people are making the decisions that determine the state of what's available to most other people in terms of resources in terms of opportunities uh, and in terms of different grisly ways to die really when we're talking about well that's true things are for most people at this point but that's true but they're also typically these are people who are parts of organizations that have their own kind of uh, in, inertia and momentum and uh, corporate culture, you could say. Sure. And so whether or not any given individual actually has the opportunity to make a, a decision that isn't already defined for them by the position that they occupy within a given structure, uh-huh. it's kind of hard to say. It's it's. I, I was listening to another one of the Hidden Forces podcasts recently uh-huh. where he's talking to a guy who's basically describing U.S. foreign policy since World War II. And he talks about the forces that are at play that basically lock subsequent administrations into policies that they wouldn't want to choose. You know, Now, you could make the argument that, well, they still chose those policies, but given the set of prevailing forces at the time – it really would have been very difficult to choose a different option. And a lot of it has to do also with the stories that are being told. You know, So like the Cold War and the uh, evilness of communism was perhaps a bit blown out of proportion. But you know, when you consider what happened under Stalin, it's really not blown out of proportion. <laughs> you know, the, the Soviet system was a nightmare. And the fear that somehow or another that that would spread across the world was a legitimate fear. And so, for instance, one of the things that he talks about is in Korea, when the North invaded the South, the West interpreted that as this kind of global communist attempt to dominate the world. And this was like one of the chips were falling. And in retrospect, maybe not so much the case. It was really more of a regional issue that didn't need to be addressed in such an extreme way by creating another war, which is basically what happened. But at the time, because of the stories that were being told and because of recent history that were beyond those stories, there was actual facts on the ground of what, you know, how many millions of people died under Stalin and the kind of chaos that happened after the introduction of the bomb completely changed the whole understanding of what humanity was doing and what the consequences of war might be. There was a lot to get 
reacquainted with, like a really rapid period of change that people had a hard time wrapping their heads around. So I have more sympathy for the people who were making the decisions at the time when I think about all the various things that were going on and what they had experienced and the things that we know now that they didn't then. So I'm not so sure. I mean, on the other hand, I do think that the only thing that we really have are the limited choices that we can make. And sometimes, you know, making a much more difficult choice, which is not typically what human beings do, would lead to a a, a different result, perhaps far better result. And so it, it definitely is probably the, the thing that's most important to consider. What are the real choices available to us at any given moment? And the one that seems to be the most obvious choice, is it really the best choice? Quite often it isn't, you know, but there is this kind of inertia thing, particularly when you're talking about groups. It's very difficult for like someone to stand up in the middle of, you know, an organization that has thousands of people in it and say, I think we're all going, you know, you're going to get the same thing that happens that we were talking about before. It's like, oh, this is a person who doesn't believe in our story. Get him out of here. You know, it is really hard to turn around a ship once it gets to be a certain weight and a certain speed. Yes. (laughs) That is a great analogy for what's going on. I mean, if we're headed for the waterfall and there's just nobody on the ship with a big enough paddle to push it back in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, then and it's go- like we're every- going over and it's going to take a while, but <laughs> there's nothing we can do about it. And it's like everyone agrees that we're going over. That's the thing that's really crazy about it. It's like mm-hmm. it, maybe there's still a few people who think that everything's okay, but not a lot. Most people seem to think that we're heading the wrong way and that we really need to change. But, you know, I can't imagine how we would ever come to a consensus about what we're going to do differently. This is, this is why I brought up the comment originally about about people in power and making decisions. Because I do agree with you that there are stories which hold people into positions where they make decisions that from a disconnected perspective that held uh, human life and life of the biosphere is kind of the, the highest priority would be bad decisions uh, or just life in general. Hmm. You know, when a police officer decides to shoot someone who's running away from him. Right. Right. Um, but is supported in that decision by all of his coworkers. You got to wonder, like, what's going system. on? What's going on in those situations? Right. It's really- so I do sympathize with that point of view, but. Let, let's take the whole the whole problem with our climate disruption and our you know potentially impending doom. Mm-hmm. Um, without talking about the details, let's just presume we believe all that crap and it's really happening and that things are not going to be good if the trajectory keeps going the way it is. We're not even discussing it on any meaningful level in terms of. The, the power we have as a species with our technology and our in, ingenuity, we're not really de- dealing with that problem. And it's because people in power don't want to deal with that problem because they're making an obscene amount of money not dealing with that problem. And that, that to me is, <clears throat> it's a conclusion. It's not unassailable. It's, it's, it's not with... Um, without, you know, an opinion of my own thrown in there to support it mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how I look at things. But it, it brings me to the question of when you're in a situation and people have power over you and they're doing something that's going to destroy both you and them, 
What, where, where is your ethical stand going to be? What do you have? What does that give you the right or power to do mm. in that situation? Because, hmm. you know, if, if I'm stuck in a car with you and you're trying to drive it over a cliff and I'm not strong enough to wrench the, the steering wheel out of your hand, do I get to start punching you? Right. Right. And that's a, that's a question that I think is really relevant to what's going on right now because they're not going to – I don't believe they're going to stop doing what they're doing. Well, okay, let's and put it this they way, They being though. defense industry, pharmaceutical industry, people with power in government, people with power behind government who just buy candidates – they don't seem to be slowing down at all. In fact, they're ramping up. They're fracking now. You know? <laughs> they're doing everything they can. They've been trying to start a new war every couple of years and yeah. mostly been successful. Yep. We'll see if they're successful with Iran or not. Mm-hmm. But that, we've known that's been coming since Iraq won. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's been in the background and now it's in the foreground. Um, and, and they've been programming us for all that. For, for this whole time, I feel like it's well, always you know been, that, these guys are the boogeymen. These guys are the boogeymen. You know, this they're is, really the boogeymen. Let's go kill them. We should have done it a long time ago. Well, the thing <laughs> is, though, that, you know, they have the power. And so whenever uh, an act of aggression is committed against them, they, they use it as a justification mm-hmm. to tighten the screws. I was talking about Iran as the boogeyman. Yes. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just realized right. you could totally, you could totally be saying, "Let's go, let's go, like knock off all the world leaders." I was trying to address the the, yeah. the thing that you were talking about before, which is, you know, when do you know, like, at what point is it okay to punch the guy who's driving? Right. right now, first of all, they're driving. So if you punch them while they're driving, it's like they're putting us in danger because of the the road they're driving down. Uh-huh. But then when we punch them while they're driving, we're, we're also adding to the we're danger. adding to the danger. I may have come up with a better analogy <laughs> than I thought I was to begin with. <laughs> and then, you know, they there's a good chance they're going to just punch back, right? So, and they are the ones who are driving. So typically they have a lot more behind them when it des- when they decide to punch. Yeah. So it seems like most of that kind of stuff is ill-fated. It's like what's happened in the whole radical environmentalist movement, you know? Radical environmentalists are now terrorists. Right, Earth Firsters, you know the people who decided that it was time to start using sabotage as a means of uh, helping the environment. It didn't work, you know that that whole strategy just failed, mm-hmm. you know. But most strategies against this juggernaut have failed. It's hard to point to anything that's really been effective. Mm-hmm. You know, you could say that well on a certain level. We're confronted with a power that's greater than our ability to deal with it. And it's, it's a kind of satanic power. It's, it's, uh, it's materialist, mm-hmm. right? Very it materialist. doesn't care about the future. Nope. It's about short-term gains. You know, it's driven by money to a large extent. Uh, and it's also cynical because it's basically an, it's acknowledging the dismal future that it's creating. So, what is the appropriate response? Like, how, you know, this has been like the question that I've been tormenting myself with for my whole fucking whole life. Whole life, like, exactly. How, how do we respond? What are we supposed to do with this? It's, a, it's an untenable situation. Mm-hmm. And there has to be some kind of, I mean, that's why, in some respects, this podcast is important to me because I feel like the only thing that you can do in this circumstance is to speak the truth as clearly as you possibly can. 
mm-hmm. irrespective of the consequences. You know, now in some instances, and when things get really crazy, that's equivalent to throwing a punch towards them. You know, sure. But when it gets to that point, and they're going to interpret the stuff that we're saying as if it were a threat, right? It's like, okay, really, right? It's now gotten to the point now where you can't even take criticism. Like exactly. we're not we're not throwing bombs at you. We're just saying what we see going on. Now, well, right? They've they've <laughs> taken and criminalized the whistleblower activities, which reveal crimes. Nothing right. happens regarding the crimes, but the whistleblowers are persecuted. Exactly, and, and we so have, there is is there no point where people will throw up their hands <clears throat> and say, "This is not my government. This is not what I want to see happen." Because I've felt like that a million times. And if we all did that, then it would be over tomorrow. Well, it's amazing. It's but, like, okay, the Democrats are all complaining about Trump now, but they can't get behind a candidate that isn't part of this horrible system. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm anyone who's, who's not convinced they're, they're anything different than Trump. I think they're playing, you know, they're basically the same team, uh-huh. you know, wearing different colors. Yes. And kind of wink, wink, nod, this is nod. How you divide and conquer. It, it, it seems to work pretty well. Yeah. Everywhere it's being implemented because it's pretty much being implemented everywhere except where there's like, I heard about an island where there are some indigenous people and you're not allowed to go there because they will just kill you. <laughs> like Those people, they've got their own little thing going on. I wonder where that is. That would be an interesting thing to look into, there was an but not too closely. In the past year sometime because somebody went there thinking he could talk to them or something and he would be all right and they just killed him. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Where is it? Do you have any um, sense? I'm thinking that it's in Malaysia somewhere or huh. off of India. I can't All right, we'll have to exactly. do some research on that. We'll report back to you on that one. Um, but well, anybody who's not in that situation uh, of, of being an undisturbed sort of indigenous personage has, has been faced with this problem just by virtue of knowing a little bit about the world they live in. Right. It's crushing, actually. And and most indigenous groups now have been destroyed, right. I'd say, right. pretty much. So, or turned into some sort of like museum pieces. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and paraded out so that we can have debates about things like reparations and cultural appropriation and, and you know. So a tool of division and political. It continues to be a tool of division as long as we're talking about it and, and focusing on it. You know, there's definitely racism, there's definitely genocide, it's all going on. But we aren't really addressing the root causes. Those things are symptoms of the fact that people wield an awful lot of power over all of us. Almost all of us. Well, but another factor is just the, the sheer number of people. So we're at a late stage of a protracted period of conflict because we're competing over resources. And that's gotten to the point where it's there's so much buildup of I mean, think about what it takes to actually have a nation that you can keep secure. You know, if you're not one of the one of the major players, the only way you can do it is basically being an ally, which is essentially a vassal state of one of the big players. And there's a huge reshuffling going on right now, which is also really interesting. I, I I think there is a good chance the United States is going to end out kind of all on its own with like Israel and Saudi Arabia. <laughs> it's like that's about it. Sounds like you know? the Axis to me. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> huh? Interesting. You know? Huh? I, I I don't 
I don't have any kind of feeling of prejudice against someone because they might be German. Mm-hmm. Because Hitler was German and we think that they were the bad guys in World War II. Right. Clearly they didn't think they were the bad guys. Right. Right. Uh, nor, nor did the Russians clearly ever think that they were the bad guys. Right. Uh, when I was in high school, I got to visit the Soviet Union. It was still the Soviet Union. Wow. Um, Interesting. And it was really clear to me that the people over there were actually quite a bit more informed about worldly matters than Americans. Yeah. <laughs> and I had grown up thinking that they're just all brainwashed and they don't even know what's going on in the West. Huh. Uh, well, this, this end of the West. that's one of the strange things, too. We've always been told that, you know, we live in the free world. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, and, and, you know, let's be clear. There are certainly places that are a lot less free. For sure. Yeah. But, uh, but really, when it comes down to it, we're maybe not as free as we've been led to think we are. Right. Well, you can let your dog off the leash if it knows to stick around and doesn't want to run and play in the woods. It's mm-hmm. more free, but it's not free to run and play in the woods because it knows not to. Right. So I've often said that we're more free because we're more tame. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because they don't have to worry so much about us because they've got us kind of locked in our little buckets right. doing what they want. Whether it be hating each other or working for them or whatever it is, right? Um, we have we have freedoms because um, a lot of those freedoms are just distractions. Uh huh. Well, when you consider about how uh, how wild humanity has been, uh, taming the species is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we have. We have the capacity to be pretty frickin' horrifying and cruel, even when we're relatively tame. <laughs> so, and when you when you go back and consider some of the stuff that people have done to each other, I mean, uh, the the types of uh, treatments of enemies in the past is frickin' horrifying, and it was one of the first efforts on the part of nations to maintain their uh, rule was to display for all to see the horror that they were going to visit on any enemy. Right. And so they would do extra horrible shit just to really make it clear that they're not playing around so that they don't have to go through the horrors and, and, uh, and costs of war. So that's been a big part of the game for a long time too in, in an effort to try to maintain some kind of stability with these large organizations of people. Do you think that that comes out of some fundamental aspect of our nature or do you think that there's p- potentially different aspects of our nature which could be labeled as um, abnormal or you know, perhaps... I actually do have a theory about this. Yeah. You know, I, I, my sense is that this is actually really simply a function of population. Yeah. That consciousness is unavoidably molded by the degree to which it's confronted with um, others in its effort to go about doing its business, right? So when you want something and there's a whole bunch of obstacles to it, which can be in the form of a bunch of other people. 
bunch of other forms of consciousness like yours because forms of consciousness typically want basically the same thing. So we as human beings all have, you know, roughly the same idea of what constitutes food, you know? And if you just think it on a really, really primitive level, like the more people there are, unless the food uh, resource grows, then there's going to be more and more obstacles to getting your mouth filled with food. So at a certain point, you then start to see these groupings where alliances form in order to secure access to what resource you're trying to hold on to. And this process continues and intensifies as the population grows. So you eventually get to the point where all kinds of tricks and games and technologies have been developed in order to secure access, which means not only keeping out the enemies, <laughs> you know, but also of your own, managing the supply that they have access to so that they don't overconsume and then you're really in trouble and have to like expand your territory or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of about that's why there's so much unrest as populations grow. And that's basically what's been happening for, you know, it's pretty much an, an, an arc on the way up, particularly since World War II, we've been seeing nothing but population increase. Resources have not grown. Some of them are getting somewhat exhausted. And particularly as there's uh, environmental pressures now where, maybe less reliability about weather, so less reliability with crops, less nutrition in the crops because the stuff is over-farmed and the soils are depleted and all that stuff. So it's like an intensifying, difficult situation to manage. So that's why I think the only solution is to try to reduce the population and let's do it in a way that's better than the way that we've done it in the past. Because the way we've done it in the past is the horror show that is history. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's there's a perspective in there that comes uh, from the book Ishmael we were talking about the other day. Mm. Wherein, if you look at it in terms of resources and scarcity of resources and control of the resources, um, your idea is, is fairly coherent. Mm. Um but we know that if the population has to grow in order for the empire to succeed, that this is an absolutely unsustainable kind of an idea uh, process. It's not going to be able to go on forever. Well, the, so, di- the difference would be if you have a, the development of uh, technologies that replace humans. So now we have artificial intelligence and robots, and they're going to be doing a bunch of the things that human beings do, and they're going to be doing a bunch of the things that human beings do way better than we've done them in the past. (laughs) They're going to be doing it for the people who have power. Right. So that changes the story. It really does. It, it, It makes it possible, perhaps, that systems could be instituted where the population density would not need to be as great. You know, and it's like, okay, the people who, you know, maybe they're not the best people for the position, but there they are. They're, you have to deal with that. It's, it comes back down to, like, who's driving the car? And we've already agreed that punching the driver doesn't really accomplish much. Right. <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, part of the story is that we have certain people driving, mm-hmm. and they're not going to get out of the driver's seat. And there's not much we can do about that. So part of it is... 
How do we come to terms with the potential that now uh, confronts us with the changes that are happening? Because there are some major changes happening. And a lot of it looks really horrible, but some of it suggests that there might be a way of doing this that wouldn't be so horrible. Like I don't know if we spoke about it last time, but one of the things that I'm thinking is because of the automation and artificial intelligence and the robots, a lot of people's jobs are going to be gone. And so a lot of people aren't going to have work. So it makes perfect sense, just like Andrew Yang is saying, we need to institute universal basic income and give people just a basic level of support so they can live their lives without being plunged into misery, destitution, and you know everything else. So one of the potential perks, particularly as we enter a world where that gets more and more dystopian, which we are, we're already in it, you know, if people are voluntarily willing to retire their reproductive capability, then give them a little bit more UBI as, as, a, as, as like an incentive to some extent, but also as a way of showing appreciation that some people are willing to take the problem seriously. Because I think on some level what we've really ended up with is a – combative dialectic between the rulers who are driving the car and the passengers who are the body of the people. Mm -hmm. And democracy was kind of a compromise, you know, where you still basically had this sovereign ruler who would step in whenever necessary, but the people had some kind of a voice, you know. But now it's basically like the people have grave objections about what the rulers have been doing. And with good reason. Yeah. You know, because the rulers have been screwing people over and over and over again and grabbing incredible reward for themselves that they don't deserve. But on the other hand, the people have continued to proliferate. (laughs) You know, like we just have made more and more of us, which make more and more of a problem. And we seem to be unwilling to consider that that actually is a huge factor in making things worse. So... The recognition on both parties, you know, the, the elite ruler class and then the rest of us who make up the body politic, I think if we can all come to terms with that, that we share some responsibility for the circumstance we're in, maybe we can come up with a system that will help to relieve the pressures um, without ending up dropping atomic bombs on each other or all the other horrible shit that is possible. I'm not sure that the people driving the plane, though, or the, the, the car, people driving the car, aren't really driving a plane, and they feel like they have a parachute, and they're just going to fly it into the volcano and jump out. So there we have the breakaway civilization concept. So there's some people, like, you know, probably the, the transhumanists and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and their rockets, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> who think that somehow or another they're going to escape Earth and start a new civilization elsewhere from scratch that'll work a lot better because they'll have designed it. And I think you can't get more hubristic than that. And the fact that, you know, Elon Musk seems to currently be going through some sort of a self-detonation <laughs> is, a, is sort of a sign of what we're going to, you know, what we're going to be seeing and what we can reasonably expect from those types of projects. Mm-hmm. You know, I personally think that the idea that human beings could live somewhere other than Earth and be human beings is absurd. 
I think once we leave, it's sort of like uh, William S. Burroughs did this uh, short story about what would happen to humanity if we actually tried to live in space. And it, he basically envisions that we would just turn into these kind of like a blob, like basically a, 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 pro, a protoplasm inside of a machine exterior, right. you know? And I think that's probably pretty realistic. And so it's like imagining this glorious life elsewhere, even on something as close as Mars, you know, which is really close yeah. as far as things go. And, you know, I saw someone recently who's working. He's like, they're, they're like an astronaut training to do a mission on to Mars, to go live on Mars. And the quote that they had was, space is trying to kill you, right? <laughs> That's the environment you're going to be living in. Like, okay, here on Earth, the environment that we're living in there are some dangers, right? <laughs> you know, but it's not the entire environment. It's, it's just not the whole story. Man. No, no, our environment actually, <laughs> when it was intact, was providing us with many, many beautiful things, and and you just we're not going to see that elsewhere. Not in our solar system. Maybe some other solar system, but by the time you get there, mm-hmm. you, you'll be lucky if you can. <laughs> who knows? You know, I, I think it's. An absolute pipe dream. I think it's way more realistic to think about a UBI bump for people. Who right. are, let's see, can we somehow or another taper ourselves and get back into balance with the natural world? Because the natural world contains everything that we need, and it's not totally broken yet. I mean, right. we, we see here in, in Southern Oregon that it's still, there's some remnants of the natural world and that it can be healed if it's just treated with respect. You know, and if we just play a relatively humble role within it, it works great. Nature is incredible. You know, it's not necessarily kind all the time, and sometimes it's not fun, but nature is awesome, and it really fundamentally is the only thing we have right. when it comes down to it. Because even, even the fucking agribusinesses need to have seeds that will perform. You know, the seed, it's mm-hmm. like... Well, that's can't. why Monsanto is, is so scary because they're trying to control all the seeds for all the food that we eat. Yep. Um, I think you. I think you raise a really good point there that the, the nature, um, the environment that supports us, uh, needs to be kind of at the forefront of our thinking um, as we look at things like the universal basic income, reducing the population. I think that reducing the population. Um, is a phrase that I balk at just a little bit because I think the point is merely is more that we need to change our philosophy that population growth is necessary or even good. That's a good way to rephrase it. And I, I like think that. that that's a different way to phrase it that puts it in a different light, uh-huh. which is that currently, if you have something that grows uncontrollably, we call that cancer. You know, right. that we are the cancer <laughs> on the planet. I mean, right. it came right out of the Matrix movie. You know, huh. um, interesting. So, I don't think that we need to reduce the population necessarily. I think that we need to stop destroying the environment by destructively extracting resources and creating massive pollution. Well, then I'd be really curious to run the numbers. I mean, is it possible that we could have the population that we currently have and not continue to destroy the natural world? I think we could have many times the current population. If we really? Did things, yeah, if we were, if we, 
if we were doing things in ways that had to be sustainable and had to be kind to our fellow human being in some way, no, we wouldn't be building big empires, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't have to build all of these weapons. We put, we put more, than, more than half of all human energy, I'm going to guess, goes into making things that are designed to destroy other things that we make and other people. Right. But that's to secure our, our uh, ability to maintain our national boundaries and kind of not be infiltrated by others who would interfere with our day-to-day operations. I feel like somewhere <laughs> in there, though, is a story that we've been fed. And I don't know if all well, of it holds up to the scrutiny of like where all the money is going and where all the resources are going. Um, when we produce something that that isn't necessary, say a plastic toy, uh-huh. um, there's a lot of plastic toys. We don't need a single one of them. Right. And they're choking up the fish that we need to eat. So... Do we need plastic toys to maintain our control over a resource that we need? We actually wouldn't be growing as a population if we didn't have excess resources, specifically food. You cannot grow a population without extra food to go to the extra mouths you're trying to produce. Right. Um, Well, I think part of the reason why we started making all these unnecessary widgets was to give people something to do so that they would be able to uh, survive and fit into the world and not get restive and not get violent. I, I think that basically the whole project of this post-bomb economy was to prevent the social revolutions from the previous age uh, from reoccurring again and overthrowing political structures and creating the kinds of chaos that happened after, you know, the Bolshevik Rez- Revolution or even in France the, that eventually created so much chaos that it brought about the reign of Napoleon. Right. So those are understandable goals, you know, and I think what fundamentally ended up happening with the bomb is that it made war so unthinkable that we had to find some other way of uh, dealing with our conflicts. And part of that was the development of the consumer and all of this economic activity uh, basically was like warfare on the planet, on the environment, to substitute for what we would have been doing, which would be killing each other. You know, so... In a way, it feels to me, and I, you know, I don't know if anything like this could be proven, but it just seems like it's pretty obvious that because our ability to hurt each other got so intense, we fundamentally said, "Okay, fuck it, we're just going to have to destroy the environment." You know, <laughs> uh, so that's why I'm I'm somewhat skeptical of the idea that we could do this population that we currently have in a sustainable way, although. It has to be said that there's been a lot of technological development since the atom bomb was developed, and we can do things way more efficiently. And if we did stop driving and flying places and we found ways of producing food locally and we weren't shipping stuff all over the world all the time, that seems like it really could change things to a large extent. So that seems to be a a really good thing to do as well. <laughs> I don't think that just UBI 
with a bump for people who are willing to not reproduce is going to solve everything. There's definitely more efficient and more respectful ways of continuing to function as a civilization, and we should definitely be doing that as well. But it may be that, you know, it is, it's definitely the case that um, the idea of needing to continue to expand a population in order to maintain uh, a, a thriving economy. Like one of the things that you'll hear quite often is people in the financial world saying things like, well, you know, we're in a real demographic uh, slump right now and there's not going to be enough people working to support the retirees later down the line you know <laughs> and meanwhile like the central banks are just like printing money and throwing it at the big players at, at basically zero interest rate so you know why are they saying that there isn't going to be enough money because <laughs> they're already just making up the money as it is so it seems like the system has already gotten to the point where it's all funny money anyway mm-hmm. So if it if that's the case, then uh, what is the difference if we start just giving the money to the people? You know, so so that that suggests like, okay, there's a technological aspect to it where we're dealing with more efficient, more local, uh, more sustainable ways of going about doing things. There's a kind of social population dynamic that's integrated into the economy with this UBI thing, and then the potential for finding. Uh, a way of dealing with essentially fiat, which is pretty much the only way it's going to work, right? I mean, because if the system really goes, then, okay, we go back to feudalism, we go back to gold or whatever it is, and a shitload of people are going to die. And it's going to be ugly because they will bring out the horror weapons, you know, because so many people are going to be plunged into absolute misery. So it seems like, okay, so we have the funny money and that's just going to have to do Maybe there'll be some other type of of currency, you know, something that, uh, well, you know, there is the digital currency thing, and that seems like okay when it comes to uh, surveillance capitalism. You know, the, one of the other things that she talks about in that podcast is how China and uh, Taiwan are kind of a model for the way surveillance capitalism might work, which is kind of a horror show, but that is basically the way it's going. So you have this. You know, everyone has a an account, a social account, and you guess basically you get paid through a digital currency into that account. And if you do anything that pisses off the authorities that be, then you get limitations on your, you know, you can't travel, you can't whatever. It could be anything. You could basically just be completely shunted aside and, and banished in essence, you know. So that's pretty scary, right? But um but those, I think, are the costs for continuing large, dense populations. You know, that's the the denser the population, the more restriction there's going to be on individual autonomy. It just seems like there's no way around that. You know, so I still think that okay, yeah, we can call it no longer feeling the need for the population to grow, but ultimately that would be getting comfortable with reducing the population. <laughs> Now maybe it, you know it does seem like the people who were talking about that back in the '70s, when there was a recognition that population explosion was a real problem, they also completely failed. You know, I mean, I think it was Paul Ehrlich who wrote the population bomb, and he was making a lot of noise about, hey, we really got to deal with this issue, and he got a lot of play in intellectual circles and in some of the political circles and stuff like that. But obviously, it just it didn't work. Right. You know. 
So I think part of that also explains some of the things that have happened since, uh, you know, the 80s and the 90s, that the, the kind of attitude that the elites have taken towards the rest of the world. Part of it is because they couldn't find enough political power to reason their way into a solution. So some of them, I think, became cynical, and some of them became far more like uh, alternative methods, you know, manipulative, something, trying to sell people on one thing when it's really about something else. Because mm-hmm. it is very difficult to reason with people. You know, most people are not willing to discuss these things in great length. Well, now we're, now we're in a situation where we don't, we don't even have an ability to call something out as being untruthful. Right. Um, and, well, and so I mean, we're in a kind of a Orwellian stage at this point, deeply Orwellian stage. Of yeah. The truth is what someone with power says it is. Um, well, but now also there's so much confusion about it. Like the the, the fake news meme, you could say, right. has He's created. Right. There's a lot of fake news, and a lot of it's the mainstream media, but... I mean, it's, it's brilliant, if you really think it's, about it. It's, I don't know if he's a genius or a psychopath or, or what he's even trying to do someday. But I wasn't even just referring to him. I was referring to the whole setup. Uh-huh. Like, the setup is absolutely brilliant. It's like you have clear evidence that... Fake news is epidemic across the spectrum, whether you're talking about mainstream, alternative, whatever it is, there's a shitload of fake news in there, right? Which makes it possible for everyone to say that the opposition is full of shit. Right. Right? So Nobody's going to be believing anything and coming up with any new perspectives when... Who is the arbiter of no, truth anymore? Like, no you have... There. There's no one, right? So... Uh, <laughs> It makes me wonder if ever there was truly a real news. Like, was Walter Cronkite really a, uh, was he a true representation of a fair and balanced media? Was there, you know, probably not, right? It was probably better than it is now. Mm -hmm. But the idea that we had at that time, I remember as a kid watching Walter Cronkite and I remember being told that he was awesome. And I remember feeling a level of confidence in whatever the hell it was he was saying that that was basically what reality was, that I was getting a message about reality that I could count on, right? Now, I, don't, I can't think of anyone who I can trust <laughs> to give me— John a, Oliver's pretty good. Oh, God, I don't think so. No. No, <laughs> I don't. No, I don't. I can't think of anyone. There are some people who I think are earnestly trying to give us a real picture of reality. But I think even they are confused. Right. Yeah, I, I heard recently a guy who was the frickin' – he was Assistant Secretary of State to Colin Powell if I remember correctly. Uh-huh. Maybe it was his chief of staff. He said, I think it was about the war in Syria. He said, I can't tell from my sources what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, if this guy can't tell what's going on, what the real story is, what's actually happening, 
How the fuck can I figure out what's going on? Yes, that was it. That was part one of part one. Tune in next time for part two of part one. Conversation with Jeff. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.